Hi, my name is Brian, and I am a resident at Spalding Rehab in Boston. And I'm Ashley. I'm also a resident at Spalding. Today we'll be reviewing board-relevant material for stroke complications. Let's get started. The AAP Board Review Series is for educational and entertainment purposes only. It should not be used to diagnose, prevent, or treat any diseases or conditions. The views expressed are solely those of the host and do not represent the official views or policies of any entity. Case 1 is a 68-year-old male with a past medical history of hypertension, type 2 diabetes, and hyperlipidemia presented to the hospital with right arm and leg weakness and imbalance. Non-contrast brain MRI showed a small left acute posterior putamen infarct. The patient received TPA on initial arrival to acute care. The patient was transferred to inpatient acute rehabilitation. The patient and family now mentions the patient having new onset urinary and bowel incontinence. How would you approach this? This is a very common issue in the inpatient setting. We typically find urinary and bowel incontinence within the first month of injury. The incidence of urinary incontinence ranges from 50 to 70% during the first month of stroke. The incidence decreases to 15% at six months, comparable to the general population of 17%. The etiology is often multifactorial and can present at different times during a patient's rehab stay. That's very common. What's the cause of bladder dysfunction? The first potential cause could be from the stroke itself. When we consider voiding disorders, they can be presenting in an upper motor neuron or lower motor neuron presentation. You can find bladder areflexia with decreased tone in the external sphincter, or you can have a spastic bladder with bladder outlet obstruction. It can also be a medical complication, such as a UTI. Many of the causes of bladder dysfunction are a result of functional deficits, particularly if there are issues with toilet transfers, impaired mobility, communication issues such as aphasia, and or cognitive deficits. So how do we fix this problem? So when you encounter an issue with bladder dysfunction, your workup should address the differential. We can start with the simplest methods. Obtain a urinalysis and urine culture to rule out a UTI. We can start a timed bladder emptying program and measure post-void residuals. We can also start a straight cath regimen for persistent urinary retention. If there is urinary retention, we can consider medications such as prazosin and tamsulosin, which are alpha-1 antagonists that may aid with urinary outlet obstruction, though we need to be aware of the common side effects of orthostatic hypotension. Most importantly, we focus on adaptive strategies for communication and transfer to the toilet, which involves education with the patient and their families. Great summary. And how do we approach issues with patients' bowel dysfunction? Also very common. About 31% of stroke patients present with bowel dysfunction. Typically, they present with bowel incontinence, but it typically resolves within two weeks. When someone presents with bowel incontinence, it is important to consider other medical issues for diarrhea. We most commonly see patients develop C. diff in the inpatient setting. However, other infectious etiologies are possible. We would also need to review medications that may cause GI issues, metformin being a very common culprit. Often, patients have been on an aggressive bowel regimen in acute care prior to their transfer that may account for their bowel incontinence. Once medications or infectious etiologies have been ruled out, the other causes of bowel incontinence are primarily functional, as with bladder issues. These would include toilet transfers and ability to communicate a need to have bowel movements. Management is also similar. 
treat the underlying infection if indicated, provide patient and family education towards more functional toileting, which may include a structured voiding regimen. Great summary. Let's present a common scenario. Your page about unilateral leg pain and swelling. What is your most likely diagnosis? My diagnosis is likely a DVT. This commonly occurs in stroke patients, up to 75% prevalence. Of those, it commonly presents on the affected side. These need to be addressed as they can progress to a pulmonary embolism. So Ashley, how would you diagnose this? DVTs are commonly diagnosed through ultrasound. There are other modalities that are rarely used but may be seen on your boards. Impedance plethysmography is a method of determining changing tissue volumes in the body based on the measurement of electric impedance at the body surface. There's also contrast venography to definitively determine the presence of a DVT. D-dimer is a lab study that can be considered in DVT-PE. However, in patients with several comorbidities, it's often positive and therefore not a reliable screening tool in the inpatient setting. How would you treat a DVT? Classically with therapeutic doses of heparin. When considering long-term management, you would have to bridge the heparin with warfarin or consider a DOAC. In patients where anticoagulation is contraindicated, for example, if hemorrhagic stroke, IVC filters should be considered to prevent PE. How about prevention? There are prophylactic doses of subcutaneous heparin or low molecular weight heparin that are commonly used while the patient is inpatient. Additionally, pneumatic compression devices can be used. This is needed in cases where pharmacologic prophylaxis is contraindicated. Awesome. Let's present another scenario. You are the nighttime covering resident and are called to the patient's room for altered mental status. What is on your differential as you walk into the room? Well, the differential for altered mental status is broad and may include infection, delirium, recrudescence of stroke, or effects of the original stroke depending on the location of the infarct. One of the most concerning issues to address is the possibility of post-stroke seizures. Stroke patients requiring inpatient rehabilitation have a higher probability of developing seizures when compared to the general population. Seizures are often classified temporally. There are seizures that present stroke onset, early after stroke or within one to two weeks, and more than two weeks after a stroke. If they occur at more than two weeks, there's a higher chance that the seizures will recur. Seizures are often associated with age, confusion, and the location and the type of the stroke, primarily large hemorrhagic strokes in the temporal or parietal region. Cortical strokes, in general, have a higher risk of developing seizures compared to subcortical strokes. The type of seizures are primarily generalized tonic-clonic in presentation. Therapeutic anticonvulsants are typically started when late seizures occur. For the purposes of the boards, Carbamazepine is a preferred medication for treating partial seizures, while valproic acid is preferred for generalized seizures. This is because these medications have lower sedating side effect profiles. Clinically, levetiracetam is commonly used as a first-line treatment. You mentioned that the patient's altered mental status may be related to an underlying infection. What would be a common infection seen in this population? Well, certainly UTI is one common infection, but aspiration pneumonia is particularly high risk in the stroke population, especially if the patient presents with dysphagia. Dysphagia is very common in the stroke population, 
ranging from 25 to 65% of patients with stroke. Dysphagia can lead to aspiration, a potentially serious complication, as aspiration pneumonia can be a debilitating and possibly fatal complication. Dysphagia is more commonly seen in brainstem strokes as well as bilateral strokes and large vessel occlusions. The risk factors for aspiration pneumonias in stroke patients include nasogastric tube feeding, reflux, emesis, tracheostomies, and a decreased level of consciousness. As a brief recap, there are four phases of swallowing. The oral preparatory phase, the oral phase or the oral transit phase, the pharyngeal phase, and the esophageal phase. In dysphagia, it is the pharyngeal phase that's delayed, which increases the risk of aspiration. There's a simple bedside dysphagia evaluation where you can evaluate for a gag reflex, coughing or choking during bedside swallowing trials. In cases of silent aspiration, this can be missed. The best predictors of aspiration on bedside swallow include abnormal cough, cough after swallow, dysphonia, dysarthria, abnormal gag reflex, and voice changes after swallowing. The gold standard for evaluation and treatment of dysphagia is the Video Fluoroscopic Swallowing Study, or VFSS. The VFSS studies swallowing with different amounts of consistencies of solids and liquids under fluoroscopy. There we can analyze the abnormal swallowing patterns and monitor differences with compensatory swallowing strategies. Another method of assessing swallowing is fiber optic endoscopic evaluation. This method is comprehensive evaluation of the pharyngeal phase of swallowing. This is more invasive and therefore less often used. Okay, so you've identified that your patient's swallowing is impaired. So what are your options for management? Modifying oral feeding is where you start. Changing the diet consistency will reduce the risk of aspiration. Thicker fluids, pureed or soft foods that are in smaller boluses can help keep the food boluses together while in the oral phase and therefore reduce the risk of aspiration. There are key compensatory swallowing strategies to follow. In the chin tuck strategy, the patient protects their airway mechanically, which facilitates forward motion of the larynx. It also decreases the space between the base of the tongue and posterior pharyngeal wall, which creates increased pharyngeal pressure to allow movement of the bolus to the pharynx. Another compensatory method is head rotation. It is important that the patient rotates towards the affected side because this maneuver closes the ipsilateral pharynx and forces the bolus to travel through the contralateral pharynx, which is the unaffected side. Those are the two highest yield strategies. There are others worth noting as well. Head tilting uses gravity to guide the bolus to the unaffected area of the pharynx. There is a method called supraglottic swallowing where you simultaneously hold your breath while swallowing, which closes the vocal cords and therefore decreases your likelihood of aspiration. You can add a Valsalva maneuver to maximize vocal cord closing, called the super-supraglottic swallow. The last method is called the Mendelssohn maneuver. The Mendelssohn maneuver is a voluntary prolongation of hyolaryngeal elevation at the peak of the swallow. With normal swallowing, the hyoid bone rises superiorly and anteriorly, which pulls the thyroid cartilage and the cricoid cartilage. The pull on the cricoid creates traction on the upper esophageal sphincter, or the UES, allowing it to open and the bolus to pass efficiently. 
Manually lifting your Adam's apple can improve your ability to swallow by decreasing the resistance of the bullet's path during the swallowing process. The patient's family asks if there is any recovery potential. How would you approach answering this? Regarding the recovery of dysphagia and stroke, one high-yield study to know is the 2012 study by Ickenstein et al., who used the Functional Communication Measures, or FCMs, as a prognostic predictor. Briefly, the FCMs are a series of 15 disorder-specific seven-point rating scales, ranging from least functional at level one to the most functional at level seven. The authors use FCM for swallowing. They also used penetration aspiration scales, which is an eight-point scale determining the severity of penetration and or aspiration. And the attempt at expulsion, where eight is the most severe with frank aspiration. Their study found that subjects 72 hours post-stroke, who rated at a level one to three, in the functional communication measure of swallowing and a level of 5 to 8 on the penetration aspiration scale were 11.8 times less likely to be orally fed at 90 days post-stroke. All right, Brian, time for a pop quiz. After an acute stroke, a 60-year-old woman presents for a stroke rehabilitation with an indwelling catheter for bladder management. What action should you order regarding the catheter? I'll give you a couple options. A, maintain it until the patient is able to transfer to the toilet with minimal assistance. B, remove it because reflex voiding returns very quickly after a stroke and risk of urine retention is minimal. C, remove it and start intermittent catheterization because reflex voiding is often delayed and the risk of urine retention is high or D, maintain it to decrease the risk of urinary incontinence and pressure sores? I think the answer is B. That's correct. The answer is to remove it because reflex voiding returns very quickly after a stroke and risk of urine retention is minimal. Next question. Which of the following is an appropriate compensatory technique for managing dysphagia? A, tilting the head to the weaker side, B, glossopharyngeal breathing, C, chin tuck, or D, turning the head to the stronger side? I'm going to go with C, Ashley. That's right. You told us all about the chin tuck, which is the right answer. What is the most common medical complication during post-acute stroke rehabilitation? A, venous thromboembolism, B, falls, C, depression, or D, pulmonary aspiration pneumonia? I'm going to say D, Ashley. That's right, aspiration pneumonia. Okay, Brian, time for case two. The same patient is now seeing you as an outpatient. The patient now presents with elbow pain. What is on your differential? Without having examined the patient, the first thing I would think about is spasticity. But we will also use this time to discuss a less common but board relevant complication of stroke, which is heterotopic ossification. Let's first talk about spasticity. Spasticity is defined as an abnormal resistance to passive movement that is velocity dependent. In stroke patients, this commonly presents as upper extremity flexion synergy with the elbows flexed, 
forearm pronated and the wrist and finger flexors flexed. The lower extremities present in an extension pattern, with the knees commonly in extension and the ankle and foot in an equinovarus pattern, with ankle plantar flexion and inversion. The cause of spasticity is complex, but for the sake of your boards, it is thought to be due to the disinhibition of the 1A interneurons. There can be a whole topic about spasticity, but we will focus on the high yield board material. The non-invasive modalities include stretching, splints and orthoses, serial casting, e-stim, and cold modalities. The use of medications has modest and controversial effect, with side effects limiting their use. Regarding chemoneurolysis, botulinum toxin is particularly helpful for focal control of spasticity, with effects lasting three to six months. Phenol and alcohol are also known to have good effects on large muscle groups like the hip adductors. However, its use is limited to pure motor nerves because paresthesias are often a less desirable effect if used on a nerve with mixed motor and sensory innervation. Intrathecal baclofen pumps may be used in this population. However, the data is mixed. Surgical tenotomy can also be considered if there is a concern for progression into an irreversible contracture. In addition to spasticity affecting the elbow, I would also consider heterotopic ossification. Ashley, can you tell us about heterotopic ossification? Sure. Heterotopic ossification, or HO, is rare in the stroke population, but it can occur within the initial three to four months following a stroke. As a recap, HO is defined as the formation of lamellar bone in the extraskeletal soft tissue. In stroke patients, they classically present on the extensor side of the elbow or the shoulder. Risk factors for HO include immobility, involved limb spasticity, associated long bone fracture, pressure ulcers, and edema in the affected limb. What is the pathophysiology of HO? That's a great question. HO is more commonly seen in localized trauma due to an aberrant recovery pathway which inappropriately activates osteoblasts. However, in central nervous system injuries like stroke, it is not completely understood. We do know that HO typically presents in the larger joint regions like the shoulders, elbows, hips, and knees, and less likely in the smaller joints. How does it present? It presents primarily with pain and decreased range of motion. You can also find warmth in the affected joint, erythema, muscle guarding, and a low-grade fever. When this presents, you must rule out other potentially severe diagnoses, including DVT, septic joint, hematoma, fracture, or cellulitis. How do you evaluate for HO? The first test you can order is a serum alkaline phosphatase, which would be elevated in the initial phase of HO. This is not a specific test, however, because other conditions may confound the presentation and present with elevated alkphos. X-ray would be a reasonable option, but would require three weeks to two months post-injury to see any findings. The most sensitive high yield test to order for early detection of HO would be a triple phase bone scan. A positive test can be seen in the first two to four weeks following injury. How do you prevent it from happening? Primarily with range of motion exercises and controlling spasticity. You can also prescribe NSAIDs, but this is rarely done. Historically, 
Perioperative focused radiation for orthopedic surgeries like hip arthroplasty have been trialed, but in the setting of a stroke, the whole body would need to be irradiated, which is not very pragmatic. How do you treat it? Bisphosphonates and NSAIDs, notably indomethacin, are the primary medications for treatment with early HO. It is also important to continue range of motion exercises as well to prevent HO and complications of HO, like ankylosis or fusion of the HO with existing bone. Surgical resection is also an option, however, they typically wait until full maturity of the HO, which can be anywhere from 12 to 18 months. Great. Now let's talk about some possible psychological effects of stroke. Post-stroke depression is very common in the 6 to 12 month period following a stroke. The etiology of post-stroke depression is both organic and psychological. There is a theory that there is catecholamine depletion from damage to the brain that connects the noradrenergic, dopaminergic, and serotonergic projections into the brain. There is also an obvious psychological adjustment that is associated with the loss of function and independence that follows a catastrophic injury like a stroke. The risk factors include a prior history of depression, female gender, non-fluent aphasias, cognitive impairment, and lack of social supports. The diagnosis of post-stroke depression is the same as any other depression using the DSM-5 criteria. Cognitive behavioral therapies and SSRI are the mainstays of treatment. Another common question that patients who have suffered from strokes ask is regarding sexual dysfunction. Regarding sexual dysfunction, strokes generally don't cause a decrease in sex drive, but a study of 192 stroke patients and 94 spouses reported a marked decrease in active sexual activity from 79% to 45%. The issues are primarily functional, ranging from communication issues to emotional issues of fear, anxiety, and guilt. One should always consider medications that may influence sexual activity. The treatment is primarily through psychosocial support. A urology consult can be considered if you are suspicious of an organic cause. To summarize, there are several medical and functional complications to consider in the stroke population. Bladder and bowel dysfunction are common in the immediate period after a stroke. Both require infectious and medication reconciliation workup before consideration of CNS pathology. Bowel and bladder issues are typically temporary but can be longer lasting due to functional deficits that result from strokes. Seizures and aspiration pneumonia are common medical complications after strokes that must be considered in patients presenting with altered mental status. Knowing the compensatory techniques will be helpful in reducing aspirations. In the outpatient setting, it is important to consider spasticity and HO in functional deficits. Emotional and sexual health is always important to consider and should be addressed in every outpatient visit. Hopefully this case helps highlight a few of the key complications that will be useful for the boards and the wards. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We would like to thank Dr. Yang Tae Lee and Dr. Shirley Shi for their contributions to the content of this podcast. Thank you for listening.